Welcome to Future Proof, the marketing podcast from Kantar and Said Business School, University of Oxford. In each episode, we speak to industry experts about the changing landscape of marketing, sharing evidence and inspiration for the future. I'm Jane Osler, Global Head of Media, Insights Division of Kantar. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Our guest today is Brian Weezer, who is Global President of Business Intelligence at Group M. So he's probably got the best overview of media, understanding media spending and approaches to media of anyone in the industry. So welcome to you, Brian. Well, thanks, Jane. Thanks for having me. I'm going to ask you, first of all, what does it mean to be leading business intelligence at Group M? What, what does your day consist of? First of all, constantly trying to make myself smarter and more knowledgeable, and then trying to make everyone else around Group M and, and WPP, as well as our clients, smarter, more knowledgeable about what's going on in the industry. I mean, I'm, I'm endlessly curious about a lot of things, and it's essentially there's a center of gravity in a product we have called This Year, Next Year, which is our flagship forecast product for advertising. And I joke that all things that can be true are contained within it. And if it's not within it, it's not true. What I do in terms of trying to understand what's going on in terms of economics, which in turn means having an understanding of certainly of politics and in the last year, epidemiology, understanding what's going on with various marketing categories and the underlying businesses, and then understanding what's going on in, in media. And I try to put those things together in terms of a diet of information consumption and, and, and critically analysis. Just before this interview, I mean, I'm doing some research on the newest UK data for retail sales and trying to look at the online retail sales data. And I try to avoid just looking at a press release. I actually am downloading the models or the, the Excel spreadsheets, and I'm trying to actually analyze them. Then I try to disseminate that. And that's, that's kind of what I do. Well, that's great. So we're going to dig deep today into the data and, and see what insights we can derive. So I think it'll be an interesting discussion. I can't really avoid talking about what's going on at the moment with the pandemic and last year. So let's just look back a little bit at last year, which was obviously unusual from an advertising and marketing point of view. What was the impact of COVID-19 on advertising and marketing from your point of view? And was it what you thought in March last year? Yeah, I think a good word for it would be that it distorted the market. 
because the way things played out were so different than what we would have expected. You know, go back to a year ago when the, the outbreak was hitting China, we could see this was going to be bad. This was not SARS. This was much worse. And and certainly by the time it was in Italy, it's like, okay, this is probably somewhere worse than the global financial crisis. And maybe if we're lucky, better than the Great Depression from an economic perspective. And so as a crude rule of thumb, it's like, well, what does that mean? Uh, I don't know, maybe 15 to 20% declines would be a starting point if you knew nothing else. What was so fascinating was how it didn't play out like that. As the year progressed, you know, a few things happened. First, although we might've expected small businesses to just get cratered, by the pandemic and all the social restrictions that followed in Western Europe and the United States, at least, what happened was smaller businesses almost certainly aggressively shifted their operations online because even having a small business with a little bit of revenue coming in is better than no revenue in many cases. And along with that shift to online activity came spending on advertising. And so you saw this in Facebook and Google's numbers, certainly by April. And large brands, we know, had cut their spending, certainly pausing anything they could by middle March. But as most categories of marketers outside of travel and entertainment or film studios could figure out how to operate and consumers were seemingly willing to buy in most product categories, they basically continued to market and continued to spend money on advertising. And I think there's some unusual, again, circumstances going on here Normally, when you have an economic downturn, marketers will cut spending because they anticipate that their competitors are going to keep spending down. In a normal recession, you don't know when it's coming to an end. And so if you subscribe to the idea that advertising is a least bad alternatives business or, or that most marketers ultimately budget through a share of voice concept, and they spend money on advertising because it's better to spend than not to spend, well... In a world where you think your competitor is going to keep spending because you can see the end of the pandemic a year out, and you think that normalcy will return right after that, and you think your competitor thinks that, as a marketer, you're going to keep your spending up. I think some of that played out because basically budgets in many categories weren't really changed on a full year basis. And so you saw uh, what we can only describe as a budget flush towards the latter part of the summer and early fall, where the budgets that were held back in April and May showed up, basically. And so as we get to the end of the year, at least at a global level, it looks like the only, the real cuts in spending came from the travel industry and entertainment or movie studios. And, and sure, some recessionary-like conditions certainly impacted many other categories. Packaged goods as an industry is weaker than it should have been uh, if there was no pandemic. And so their spending on advertising was probably lower than it would have been, but not by much. Ultimately, the year did end up down, as far as we can tell, but it was probably only down by 6%, which is really mild considering that, in fact, the economy globally is somewhere between the global financial crisis and the Great Depression.
So let's talk about some of the trends in in media that are happening as part of the, the shift that really happened last year. One of the things that seems to be certain is the increasing reliance, increasing spending on digital platforms and not only existing digital platforms, but channels like TV, outdoor, etc. that are fast digitizing themselves. And we know that from our research that advertisers are intending to spend more on digital channels this year, including online video, social media, media news feeds, online display, but also things like influencer branded content and streaming TV. So how do you see the digital market panning out this year? We, we think of digital in a couple of ways, and we, we express this in our data sets. First of all, we have a notion of digital extensions of traditional media embedded into our primary data set. You know, we're saying that a streaming service that runs ads is essentially TV from the vantage point of the advertiser. Neither the advertiser nor the consumer practically cares that someone might call it digital. And so we try to focus on, you know, the extension is really being the traditional media line item. And so the same is true when it comes to say print where pick your newspaper of choice, their affiliated website is really a print line item as far as we're concerned for the most part. Now we do show the data in a different way, meaning anything that's digital, we throw it into an internet line too in a separate data set for those who, who feel it's important to look at the data that way. I, I think it's important to just keep in mind that all media is evolving and there are platforms and environments that we can call digital that are taking share. Now it starts to get a little blurrier when we think about a legacy print owner investing in something like digital classifieds. Uh, what is that? Is that just a modern iteration of, of newspaper classifieds? It, yeah. And yet these are standalone businesses and you are seeing a lot of growth in those standalone businesses owned by traditional media owners too. But generally speaking, yeah, I mean, when you look at the pure play digital media owners like Google and Facebook in particular and, uh, and Amazon as a, a pretty solid number three, there is an increase in spending going there for, on the part of large brands, but it's not as significant as is interpreted. We can see fast growth from those companies, but on a like-for-like like marketer basis, the increase is nowhere near as pronounced. So a lot of the growth that's happening in digital media is coming from businesses who would not have otherwise used other media, whether that's because they're smaller businesses who in a different era would have used Yellow Pages, or if it's newer kinds of businesses whose, as I said earlier, the business developed around e-commerce, while they can benefit from traditional media and arguably might outperform from solid use of traditional media, they tend to allocate their budgets to digital. So you're talking about direct-to-consumer brands, either startup or those that have been acquired by larger conglomerates, for example. We tend to think about those kinds of companies. A lot of them are top of mind, especially in this industry, although it's actually the direct-to-consumer brands that I think we in the industry mostly think of are actually pretty small. It's a much more fragmented group of companies. We think about a new business being formed today. If you're going to create one, you're going to look at the world as your market, or at least the country. You're not going to look at a local trading zone. And is that a direct-to-consumer business model? Maybe, maybe not. I, for example, through the pandemic, have found that my favorite coffee roaster, rather than um, selling coffee from their store, which they, they do, will sell to me bags of beans that they now sell online. And if you were going to create a new coffee roasting business today, would you open a storefront or would you just have cheap real estate and then mail 
your wonderful beans to people. It might be the latter, right? And so is that a direct-to-consumer business or is that just the evolution of business? I do feel that those kinds of examples are probably what's driving a lot of the growth that we see in digital. And do you say that by 2024, you reckon that digital advertising will be about two thirds of all advertising, 66% globally. So marketers are going to have to understand the shift where still in many markets, digital is, is growing very fast, but still offline media is the majority of spend. So what new techniques and levels of understanding will marketers need to gain about how this new balance works? Well, let, let me take a step back uh, on that, uh, first of all. The first advocation I usually have around our data set for marketers is, please ignore everything I might say, and please ignore my data. Isn't that good for circularity, right? Like this statement is false. <laughs> So when I say, please ignore what I might say, or please ignore the data, every marketer needs to start by looking at what their own business plan is and look at how marketing can support driving whatever that business objective is. They can look at what media channels are out there as places where they can deploy resources in support of those marketing goals. And after those allocation choices have been made, then I would suggest, you know, if you want to understand the environment, the landscape in which you're deploying those resources, our data is pretty good for that. The idea that I'm trying to push back on is that if the average allocation to media is X percent in our data set, well, I would say this to a marketer, do you want to be average? Do you? No, nobody wants to be average. You want to be better than average. So don't look at this data and then benchmark your own spending against it. But the other point that's really important to keep in mind is that when you look at what that average is, Keep in mind, we are not actually tracking ad spending in this data. There are services out there, including from Kantar, which track spending. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. This data set tracks media owner ad revenue. Subtle but important distinction. What we're talking about is to say that media owners collectively generate X billion dollars in revenue as defined by these categories of advertising or media. And so when we think about the averages in there, it's actually capturing such a wide range of marketers. The smaller businesses out there would be 100% digital, not because digital is better necessarily by virtue of being digital, but because it's the only kind of medium where you could spend $100, 100 pounds, 100 euros in a given month 
and actually attempt to satisfy some kind of goal. It's not because it's digital. And there are so many small businesses out there that's driving the digital number. By contrast, for the typical large brand, it is important for them to know what the typical large brand is doing just for reference. That number is not 60 something percent. It's more like 40%. And that's because if you're a large brand, you actually can manage other media efficiently. A small brand does not have the budget to buy television-based advertising assets. They typically, if you have an annual budget of a uh, 10,000 pounds or dollars per year, you will not have any TV adverts, right? Whereas if you have a budget of 10 million or a hundred million, well, of course, the first thing you're going to do is start with television for the most part. And so I think it's really important to keep those sorts of cohorts in mind if you're thinking about benchmarks and in terms of share allocations. But as I say from the start, a marketer shouldn't look at our data to figure out their best practices. What we're saying is we can predict with some degree of accuracy that independent of what a marketer should do, we know that they probably will do these things, right? And so... When we think about the increased share allocation to digital, I, I give you the example with the e-commerce. We know that large brands are going to increase their share allocations, whatever that share is, to digital platforms because e-commerce has become such a, an increasingly important channel for a business strategy. But while it should not follow that advertising budgets go to digital channels just because e-commerce is growing, we know with a high degree of certainty that it probably will. And so in our data, we can forecast that digital grows in part because of that phenomena. But such is the simplicity sometimes with which marketers look at their budget allocations in terms of benchmarking what they think the industry is doing, what they think they should be doing. If you're a brand in this environment, you're going to get sales on e-commerce. If you allocated your budget to an e-commerce centric uh, or supporting medium in digital, and then you tried to correlate your sales with your advertising, you will find a high correlation. But you would also find a high correlation if you hadn't allocated any resources to digital at all in the short term. This highlights a bigger issue with attribution issues and how marketers do or don't and mostly don't do proper A-B testing and experimentation. At the end of the day, marketers will do that. It doesn't mean they should do it. My advocation really is that it comes to the increasing importance of digital in society more broadly. More marketers should invest time in A-B testing firstly, meaning they need to be willing to sacrifice a market in order to understand what works for them and their goal and what doesn't. That's hard to do operationally. And when I say sacrifice a market, I mean like, you know, structure proper tests where you're making sure that all of your ecosystem participants are compensated essentially for, you know, what you know will be failure. You just don't know how much. Stop advertising, stop doing anything in a given market, and then compare to a market where you do everything. Those sorts of things I think is really increasingly important in an increasingly fragmented world where it's harder and harder to identify cause and effect. Well, I think we'd definitely agree on, on the point about test and learn and that being a constant now. I think that's a really important part of what marketing is and sort of optimization happening on a, on a regular basis. It's almost compulsory for marketers to be thinking about that now. I just want to turn to consumer views about media. We, we've done a piece of research recently called Media Reactions, which was asking consumers their views about advertising on certain channels, 
like generic media channels, but then also drilling down into specific brands. And there's a bit of a conundrum going on between broadly between online and offline media, which is that consumer receptivity is higher to offline channels, channels that they're more familiar with. They understand how the ad construct works in a in a break or when you're walking past an outdoor site. And some of the views that they have about online, which varies quite significantly between online media brands. But some of the specifics that consumers don't like about online media are things like excessive frequency, interruptions, oversaturation. So what is it, if you were advising digital media brands specifically on ad load and how formats should evolve, what would you be saying? Wow. Well, I guess it really depends on the individual media owner. At the end of the day, they've each carved out different niches. And so, you know, you could start with Facebook and you could say, well, they've got a huge skew towards smaller businesses and they've got a huge skew towards, you know, businesses based in China trying to, you know, sell abroad. And the kinds of ad products they need, well, you know, it's oriented around that customer base. So I think it's important to keep that in mind. Then you look at Google and look at what their customer base is. Well, at the individual product level, search has a different skew, not dissimilarly smaller business, but also a lot of e-commerce. And so you've got to build a product around that customer base. YouTube has a heavy skew towards larger brands. So you have to build a product around that customer base. I think if I were advising the media owner, Specifically, it's keep focused on who your customer is. It's not the consumer, right? The consumer is the product, not the customer. For right or wrong, good or bad, that's reality. Now, I think it's probably healthier for a media owner in the long, long term to be very clear about how consumers are using their products and how consumers might want to use their products in the future. It's really hard though to connect the customer needs which are here and now with those consumer needs which you know ultimately benefit more from longer term thinking. So that's a, it's a bit of a conundrum, I guess. And I guess the, the advice is so specific to the individual media owner and their platform. Like, and you can think about the smaller ones and if you're Pinterest or Twitter or, or Snap, they have very different competitive issues to consider. But the other thing to keep in mind is because this long term is really difficult for them to keep in mind because they're constantly iterating, you know, at least internally, what exactly they are, what exactly the product offering is. So the advertising often becomes a bit of a bit of an afterthought, despite the fact that it might represent 100% of their customer base. And maybe that's not a bad thing from the vantage point of the media owner, because at the end of the day, it's what pays the bills for now, but may not pay the bills 10 and 20 years from now. An extreme situation, though, would be if a media owner took no notice of what consumers thought about their platform or about advertising on their platform, then the consumers wouldn't use the platform anymore if they found it irritating, so irritating. And then there wouldn't be an audience left for those advertisers, their primary customers to, to reach. So I do think they do take into account consumer views. I think they think they take consumer views in, into consideration. I don't know that they do it well. Ah, like they think that they, it's so funny. I used to joke with people. I remember an executive from a Japanese company came to visit me once, maybe five or 10 years ago. We met in San Francisco, in the city, San Francisco. And he asked me, well, tell me, how do I learn more about advertising? And he was clearly there to go to Silicon Valley and meet with companies. And I said, the first thing you do is you never go south of San Francisco, the city itself, if you want to understand advertising. And that was to say that my observation has been 
that certainly in Silicon Valley itself, it's so divorced from the realities of the advertising industry. Sure, they, they generate massive amounts of money from companies based in the Valley, but a better understanding of how advertising works and how consumers work and how consumers evolve and what their interests are would probably be found in the city of San Francisco itself. By that, I also meant like, talk to the old crotchety advertising industry people who live and work there. That's where you'll understand how advertising works or doesn't work and what the long-term of the business is. And that's where you'll find more, I don't want to say real people, but the people who might live in Silicon Valley are not necessarily necessarily representative of the rest of the world, right? And so and I think we've seen that play out over the last decade. It doesn't mean that they didn't build fantastic businesses, but it also means that the focus was very much on the product with an eye towards that product driving long-term consumer engagement, but in some ways very divorced and removed from humanity. So I saw an interview with you, Brian, from I think it was a couple of years ago, where the question was about whether you felt that agencies were cockroaches or dinosaurs. And I just wondered what your view was today. Oh, definitely in the cockroach camp. I took this job two years ago, eyes wide open and incredibly optimistic about the opportunities for the industry. And to be clear, that that line came from Rashad Tabakawala. All I was doing was citing Rashad, who I certainly think very highly of. But no, I mean, I think the point of the notion that Rashad put out there in the first place was that we're going to outlast them all. And it's the idea that, you know, if you had to bet who's more likely to be around 50 years from now, will it be entities that look like today's holding companies or their successors or Silicon Valley's tech giants? I would not be surprised if the agencies, probably going to be more agencies that survive 50 years than Silicon Valley-based technology giants. To be clear, there will be more billionaires coming out of Silicon Valley. I don't want to you know, ignore that. But I do think that there's a durability to the notion of what agencies do. The fact that the more complicated the world becomes, the more we all depend on services and human intelligence. And that's something that's often ignored. Like, you can build the best technology, but it's got to be guided by human knowledge, human insight. You can have all of this data, you can build all of these amazing uh, capabilities, but if there's a singular idea that wasn't embedded into the data, you can risk blowing up Western society. So it's the insights that you derive from it, the human intelligence, yeah. And that's why services will always matter. And that's why the human piece of this will be so much more critical and arguably more durable. And that goes back to why, where the point that Rashad made, I think still holds true. So Brian, I want you to imagine that we've moved on 12 months, let's say we're talking in 2022 in January. What do you think your story about 2021 is going to be? How boring it was. <laughs> That's my hope, at least. I really can't think of a better thing to forecast. It's so funny that prior to the election, I was generally pushing back against ever having a conversation that would be recorded like this one if it wasn't going to air within the next 24 hours because perspectives I might have on something could be just completely upended. And I don't have that fear this year. I mean, of course, there's no shortage of disruptive things that will occur in society, in economies, etc. But I look forward to saying it was a boring year. You've been listening to Future Proof from Kantar and Said Business School. For all episodes and more information, visit kantar.com or oxfordfutureofmarketing.com. 
If you enjoyed this, please leave us a rating and a review and subscribe within your podcast app so you never miss an episode.